politics, music, technology, roller coasters, golf carts, and the greatest country on earth. National Review's new show, the Charles C. W. Cook Podcast, that's me, explores the scenic highways and byways of American political and cultural life. Featuring interviews with leading writers, thinkers, and public figures, every episode offers a fresh perspective on the promises and challenges facing America. Don't miss out. Tune into the Charles C. W. Cook podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. Trump gets slammed in the New York fraud case with more to come and the continued fallout from Navalny's death. We'll discuss all this more on this edition of The Editors. I'm Rich Lowry, and I'm joined as always by the right Honorable Charles C.W. Cook, Noah Noah Rothman, and the sage of authenticity woods, Jim Garrity. You are, of course, listening to a National Review podcast. Our sponsors this episode are the How the World Works podcast, Made in Cookware, and David Bonson's new book, Full Time. More about all of them in due course. If for some reason you're not already following us on a streaming service, by the way, you can find us everywhere from Spotify to iTunes. And if you like what you hear here, please consider giving us a glowing five-star review on iTunes. If you don't like what you hear here, please forget I said anything. So Jim Garrity, no big surprise, but the the number was still shocking, kind of like the E. Jean Carroll defamation case, $350 million penalty for this business fraud case against Donald Trump, where, as we've discussed before, he clearly exaggerated his numbers to get better interest rates on loans, but it was also a victimless crime. No one lost any money. Everyone, you know, these are sophisticated financial players. They're making their own evaluations of how much this stuff is worth. But Donald Trump was totally body slammed in New York. What do you make of it? Well, both this and the developments we saw down in Georgia, where Fannie Willis, apparently it's Fannie, it's not Fannie Willis, as I've heard. Some people use the ter- uh, her name, describe, pronounce her name it's that Fonny? way. Fannie? It's funny, apparently. Wow. Yes. Breaking news. All right. Um, thank you. Uh, but look, I am sure these people are like, ah, we're going to get Trump. Um, and none of this does very much to dislodge the support of not just the MAGA base. I think there's a decent number of folks who are not always the biggest fan of Trump, but they see a genuine effort to get him and to apply the law in new and different ways that it hasn't been applied before. Uh, in the Alvin Bragg case being brought against him. In this one, which is, you know, because Trump repaid the loans, it's kind of hard to say who was the victim here, uh, who actually was hurt by the exaggeration of the value of his assets. And in the case down in Georgia, you know, I wrote about this in Friday's Morning Jolt, this this question of, look, you know, having an affair with one of your chief prosecutors uh, or, or having a romantic relationship and not disclosing that to the court is bad. The expenditures uh, certainly emit an odor about you. Know, oh, we we you know yeah we did it all on the company business card, but we paid it all back in cash. Sorry, we didn't keep any receipts. Um, all of that kind of strains credulity, and there are even some members of the resistance who are like, "Funny Willis is endangering what should be a good case against Trump through what appears to be uh, blatant prosecutorial misconduct." My my sense is. That if she lied in her affidavit, in her testament, that then all of a sudden this becomes a, uh, it becomes almost impossible for her to remain on this case. So like, I look, this is what our, our campaign season is going to be like. We're going to constantly have these sorts of things. I don't think any of this stuff actually changes people's minds about Trump. 
And it does strengthen his argument that there's somebody, you know, that, uh, look, there's somebody out to get him. The only thing I would also note is that, like, if you really do believe that the Democrats use lawfare, that the Democrats do use um, every, they throw everything but the kitchen sink at you. You know, Donald Trump has been involved in thousands of lawsuits over the course of his life. Maybe this isn't the right guy to nominate. Maybe this guy, you know, brings unique vulnerabilities to this kind of circumstance. But uh, hey, why, you know, why why would we take a person with, you know, no criminal indictments against them to, to run against Joe Biden? Things are looking so terrific otherwise. <laughs> yeah, so no, we, we, we tend to be in a different place on this stuff, but you, with, with, the, with the details mattering from case to case, but I just think it's appalling to have prosecutors campaigning basically i'm going to go get this guy and then go get him on ambiguous charges is one thing the proverbial shooting someone on fifth avenue okay you, you hate him you said you're going to get him that's a a bread and butter crime as bill barr has put it but this one is ambiguous i think the alvin bragg thing wouldn't be prosecuted if if it were anyone besides donald trump and you know it's, it's appalling the way trump behaves in all sorts of ways but i don't think this it makes it right what they're doing to him in the courts. Well, we're not on this. We're not on different pages when it comes to the Bragg case. Uh, I tend to share your outlook there, although the facts of the matter are not really in dispute. It's just the question is whether prosecutorial discretion should have played a bigger role here. You say it should. And I'm inclined to agree on the Bragg case. Um, uh, Tish James's case here against Trump in the civil fraud suit uh, is a little different on the merits. And when it comes to the actual judgment, uh, Endrigan, and I, I think um, uh, Andy McCarthy has made a pretty sound case that Endrigan, the judge, presiding judge, has uh, made statements that suggest that he's hardly an impartial arbiter of this situation. But in sent when he was handing down this judgment, uh, which amounts to like $450 million with interest, he said things like, there, meaning the defendants, Donald Trump and his sons, uh, their complete lack of contrition and remorse borders on pathological. Defend the defendants, quote, are incapable of admitting error of their ways. That doesn't sound like any Trump I know. That doesn't sound like how they comport themselves, right? And at a certain point, there is conduct in a courtroom that judges look don't look fondly on. Republicans are utterly convinced that this is a witch hunt. Democrats are not. It's about 70-20. 70-10 for Democrats when you look at the YouTube polls of his criminal hearings. We don't have any polling on the uh, civil fraud stuff, but it comports. And independents are sort of split down the middle, 30 saying he's being treated unfairly, 40 saying he's being treated fairly. Little change over the course of the last two months from Fed January and February. So we can assess basically that these views are sort of baked in. Um, there's not going to, I don't think there's going to be a lot of movement when it comes to how people look at Trump based on how he's being treated in in these court proceedings, save for the fact that he's in the public eye all the time and it reminds you of what your predisposition towards Trump is. The fact is that the voters have, are, their, be, their outlook towards these candidates is so baked in, so set in stone, that there's very few exogenous events that can change their outlook on these people. If we're looking at this as though through a campaign lens, through a political lens, it's going to be very unsatisfying because none of it's going to move the needle either direction. I want to, I don't know if you guys saw this New York times piece uh, on Fonnie Willis, where the allegation in the headline is why is the case against Fonnie Willis feels familiar to black yeah. women? 
really picking up on something that Willis herself had done. She had when she was at a, a black church. She was she said that her and her her lover, this prosecutor Nathan Wade, they're being targeted because of their skin color. It was essentially racist. And this article establishes in the headline that yes, yeah, she's probably right about that, and most black women feel like that too. But if you read the piece, it could only quote one person who shared that assessment. The rest of them, many very famous names like Donna Brazil and Anna Navarro and Sonny Hostin, they just kind of trolled whoever was on television at the moment and got their opinions on them. And all of them said she did something wrong. Very few of these people are evaluating this based on their immutable accidents of birth. They're actually looking at the facts of the case, and the facts suggest she did something wrong. Uh, the notion here that Democrats are going to be manipulable and Republicans are going to be manipulable is just betrayed by the evidence before us. Everybody's opinions on this mm -hmm. sort of thing is, is set in stone and they're evaluating them on the criteria that they really should be evaluating them. So, I, you know, partisans get locked up in their narratives, yeah. but I just don't think these are the, the idea that she's being treated un unfairly or, or being held to a higher standard when she hired a special prosecutor that she was having an affair with or started having an affair with and they went on vac vacations together. It's, it's totally insane. And there's a lot of you, you go girl kind of coverage of her testimony. Charlie. Well, when it comes to universally applicable laws, such as fraud, I want presidents and former presidents to be treated in the same way as anyone else would be. You could sum that up as no one is above the law, but that works both ways. I don't want... Trump or anyone else who's been president to be immune or treated with kid gloves, but I also don't want them to be targeted. I don't want them to be singled out. And I have been persuaded in this case that Trump has been, at least given the scale of this punishment. I don't think this case would have been brought if Donald Trump were not its target. I think this uh, I should say, veers closely to going after the man and not the ball. And that bothers me. As you say, this case was promised. It was trailed. This is not the first time New York has done this. Now, that doesn't mean that Trump did nothing wrong, but it, it should raise anyone's hackles because you could really do that to anyone. You could do it to me. I'm sure I have committed a crime. I'm sure I've committed a felony. I've been here nearly 13 years. I'm sure that I have filled in a piece of paper wrong or done something in home construction or driving or my tax returns or my immigration answers that if you really tried hard, you could get me on. And I think this case seems closer to that than it does to obvious and necessary prosecution, which some of Trump's other behavior would invite. I mean, Noah says that the judge felt a need to award this extraordinary punishment because Trump wasn't contrite. That raises my hackles a little bit too, given that Trump says that he's innocent. You know, this isn't a case where the person on trial says, yes, I did it, but I don't care. 
I don't know to what extent we want that to become a norm in our system. So I am skeptical of this one. What I will not do, and where I agree with Noah entirely, is extrapolate out from that and pretend that Trump doesn't ever do anything wrong. Uh, will not apply the same approach to other cases that have different facts. And I won't pretend that this means that it is a good idea to nominate Donald Trump as the Republican nominee on the grounds that anyone who is made the Republican nominee would find themselves subject to similar lawfare. I just don't think that is true. But I do think that this particular case is an example of too much being thrown at the wall simply because Donald Trump standing in front of it. So, Jimmy Gary, the Alvin Bragg case is set for March 25th. A month or two after that, Donald Trump will have been convicted of a felony in New York, yes or no? Yes, um, but I don't actually think it will affect the presidential race very much. Noah? Uh, yeah, same. It, he will be convicted and it won't have much of an effect on the race. Much of an effect. Because I just don't know how to evaluate how the Biden campaign will handle that. He will be essentially accused of of impropriety, sort of sexual impropriety, another one. And um, how does that play outside of partisan circles? So, so Noah, do you assume a January 6th conviction would have much more resonance and impact? Or are you just... just it would if we look at the mm -hmm. polling. Yeah, that's the one that resonates the most. The the uh, special counsel charges re in relation to the false electors, the January 6th stuff. If the polling says that most people have heard about that because they've heard about January 6th most likely, and they're most interested in that. The other one's just, in the, and the Bragg case is at the very bottom of that list. Charlie? Yeah. I think he's going to be convicted. I don't know what it will do to the presidential race. I don't think we should base our responses to it on that, though. I'm not saying anyone here is. Often, though, I do see that used as a sort of barometer. Mm -hmm. I think people should be bothered by this if they believe that this case is frivolous or unjust, irrespective of whether or not it helps or hurts Trump get to the White House. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll make it unanimous. We've gone back and forth a little bit on this one, but I'll say he's been he's going to be convicted. New York has not proved a great venue for uh, <laughs> for Donald Trump over the last several months. I tend to think it won't have a huge impact and agree with everyone on that as well. And just it seems for democratic purposes, th this case going first and convicting him first on, on this is, is bad for, for, uh, you know, it could take, take the sting if they get him on the, some of the sting out of the January 6th one, if they eventually get him on that as well with that, let's hear from our first sponsor. This episode as listeners of national review podcast. You already have all the riveting political commentary and news analysis you need, but good news. There's a new podcast featuring author, commentator, and our old friend, Kevin Williamson, offering a fresh perspective on something we all do work to make a living. That's right. Kevin has teamed up with the Competitive Enterprise Institute to make a new show called How the World Works. And instead of trying to unravel the mysteries of the universe, it's a look at how the world, well, actually works. Each episode, Kevin has an intimate conversation with a notable guest where they discuss the jobs they've had, why work matters, the role of work in our economy, and social lives and policy ideas for helping workers. After all, work involves a lot more than hours put in and paychecks cash. So be sure to listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org slash podcast. To find the latest episodes of the show, that's cei.org slash podcast. We're great friends with folks at CEI who do wonderful work, including producing this podcast. So, no, we have continued fallout from <clears throat> this just uh, you know, 
wrenching news from the the Arctic about uh, uh, Alexei Navalny. His um, you know the, the news came down when the Munich security <coughs> conference was was meeting. His wife was there, put in an incredibly uh, an intrepid and, and brave uh, performance. And there's some chatter of oh this will this will change everything. But unfortunately, I'm not so sure. Where are you on that question? Well, I don't know what it would change. It's not exactly news that <clears throat> the Putin regime is violent and repressive and uh, has a unlovely habit of poisoning and murdering rivals to Vladimir Putin himself. So if you're shocked by this when you're just tuning in, and I don't think most are, I would imagine that uh, if, even if you don't know the names like Boris Nemtsov or Anna Politikovskaya, you're aware roughly of what the character of this regime is. Um, there's some perception on the part of advocates for Ukraine funding for de its defense that this could shake something loose among members of Congress. I don't necessarily think so, although I don't know how else Joe Biden fulfills his promise here. In January of 2021, he said that there will be severe consequences for Russia if anything happened to Navalny in Russian custody, regardless of the circumstances. And he doesn't have a ton of tools left in the tool shed that he can pull out just by executive order, tightening the sanctions regime, for example, on third parties. Um, the, there's, some, there's some things that are available to him. Indeed, they did just that in December, but not much and certainly not enough to really uh, change the behavior of the regime. Sanctions have a terrible reputation for, for actually affecting some sort of behavior changes on the part of the regime. What would really change the, the nature of this debate is contributing to Ukraine's defense and the battlefield situation in Ukraine is getting very bad, very bad for, for Ukrainian, uh, for, for those who hope for Ukraine's continued defense. But we did have this survey over the weekend from Pew, Pew Research Center, which sort of shakes up the narratives that we've all become accustomed to, especially if you marinate in the day-to-day -day political dialogue conducted almost entirely by hardcore partisans, um, demonstrated that the wars in Ukraine, Israel's war, and the efforts to defend Taiwan are high-priority national priorities for Republicans and Democrats alike to the tune of uh, high 70s and 80s across, across the group. The one outlier there is the war in Ukraine, where Republicans register that as a, uh, a, vit a vital aspect of America's national interest, important to U.S. national interest, 70%, 69% of Republicans say that it is. And I imagine that a smaller share say that it's not. But to survey the national landscape, you would think that this is just anathema to Republicans. They have no interest in supporting Ukraine's defense and degrading the Russian capacity to project powers across its borders. But it's not true. It's just not true. There is a small contingent in Congress that's blocking this thing, and they are not representative of the broader electorate. They're not even really representative of their partisan voters and their coalition. So if there was any, if this was to shake up this debate at all, I don't see how it would. But if it would, it would shake up the debate by uh, putting some of these people on the back foot. Like you saw J.D. Vance over the weekend at the music, Munich Security Conference kind of putting his tail between his legs and saying like, listen, yeah, bad regime. We all know it's a bad regime, but I care more about my people, Americans, than I do Russians, which is a very different tone than he had taken previously. He had been much more aggressive in indicting those who, who would seek to provide for Ukraine's defense, saying that their priorities are misplaced. It's a little different from him today. He's talking a different, singing a different tune.
But if that changes anything among the small recalcitrant few who are blocking this Ukraine aid, I don't, I don't see that happening. So, Charlie, this is unfortunate timing for Tucker Carlson, who the day before was talking about how he was radicalized by the experience of being in a Moscow grocery store and then was at a conference where he was defending not asking Putin about human rights issues besides the Wall Street Journal reporter who was kidnapped saying leaders kill people, leaders kill people, which is, you know, true in like the, the broadest gauge, but most leaders, especially in our civilization, <laughs> you know, in our, in our country and in, in Anglo-America do not uh, jail their political opponents and put them in a gulag and see that they die. That just doesn't happen. And Trump also has, t- has taken incoming for just not, not mentioning this. And I'm sure what he's thinking as well, you know, I'm going to sit down nine months from now or whatever, I'll, I'll be sitting down from, with Putin. I don't want to uh, offend him. But th- this just seems like a, a basic uh, lowest common denominator thing is to denounce your dictatorial enemies for killing their political opponents in a, uh, a, a disgusting manner. Yeah, it's awkward timing in one sense, but it's really not awkward timing in another sense. And that sense is that you don't find yourself the victim of awkward timing if you don't praise dictators. Mm -hmm. This isn't something that happened to Tucker Carlson. He wasn't on the golf course one day and he was hit by a bolt of lightning. He went to Russia and then praised it. He defended its leader. He said that killing people's part of the job. Then Putin kills someone and he says, oh, gosh, could you believe the misfortune that has befallen me? There I was saying that Putin's a good guy and killing people's part of the job. And then he kills someone. I mean, this isn't someone putting all their life savings into the stock market the day before a crash. (laughs) This is what happens to you if you lay down with the worst people in the world. No one else has had this happen to them. I didn't lay awake at night yesterday thinking oh i just hope i hope that hitler doesn't do something bad (laughs) shouldn't have written that book saying he was doing a good job no if you don't want to be subject to the vicissitudes of awful people don't praise them i mean this isn't difficult for most of us why do you think we're all sitting in horror watching this Walter Duranty routine, because we know that it isn't true. We don't say this stuff because we don't think it, and we don't think it because we know that the guy is a monster. I just, I find this so funny. Oops, that was was bad. That was bad luck for Carlson. No, it was bad form for Carlson is what it was, and he should know better. How have we got to the point at which this Faction on the right is so nihilistic, and I think that probably is the right word. It's so nihilistic, it's so relativistic, something conservatives used to care about, that they can't distinguish between the dictator of Russia and the United States. Well, Carson's got there and he deserves this. He deserves this because what he said was absolute nonsense and it was demonstrated to be so within a few hours of his having said it. So, Jim, this this whole thing, it's so Soviet. The, the phrase they're using to describe <clears throat> what uh, killed Navalny is sudden death syndrome, right? And and this is, I wrote a comment about this last week. I just think Russia is a, a politically diseased, um, a diseased political culture. It has been forever. 
You know, some people have their nostalgic for the czars because they didn't quite kill millions of people the way the Soviets did, but they're still awful. They're just terrible. And, you know, in, in our culture, the, the nut jobs and the fascists and, and whatnot are the outliers who are kind of excluded by every, everyone else and can't, can't really get, get any footing. Unfortunately, Russian political culture is the, it's the opposite. It's the liberals. It's the people who want democracy, who want rights, who are on the, on the outs. If only the czar knew mm -hmm. uh, what terrible things were happening in his name, an attitude which we can find stateside as well. I want to take listeners back to two quotes that I think are a, a I, I want to walk very quickly. I don't, I won't pull a Putin and go back to the year 1300 to give you history. I'm going to stick to fair, relatively recent history. Um, I'm going to take you back to October 24th, 2019. Then former vice president and presidential candidate Joe Biden tapes a fundraising message. But he says, folks, did you hear the news? Once again, Putin and the Russians are trying to engage in our elections and decide who our president's going to be. Putin knows that when I'm president of the United States, his days of tyranny and trying to intimidate the United States and those in Eastern Europe are over. I'm going to stand up to him. He's a bully, just like the president. And I know he doesn't want me to be president, but to tell you what, when I'm president, things are going to change. But boy, what, we've really, he stopped, yeah, he stopped bullying Eastern Europe. Wow, you, 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 you gave him what for? Uh, and then, of course, in uh, you know June 2021, Biden said that he'd warn President Putin directly to his face about what would happen if Duvaldi were killed in prison. I made it clear to him, I believe the consequences of that would be devastating for Russia. What do you think happens when he's saying it's not about hurting Navalny? All the stuff he says to rationalize the treatment of Navalny, and then he dies in prison. It's about trust. It's about their ability to influence other nations in a positive way. Well, I'm really, I'm up for those devastating consequences. I'm very happy to see him. Let's let's rock and roll. Let's let's see what we can do because the first response apparently from Biden this week or late last week was, well, we've already demonstrated those devastating consequences by supporting Ukraine. So if you say the consequences are going to be dire and then it actually comes to that moment, you're like, yeah, we already did them. That that doesn't seem like much of a deterrent or a punishment at all. Um, and then I just kind of walk through like Putin came along in the the late Clinton years and at the very end of the Clinton. And W comes into power, and I looked into his eyes, and I saw a good man. I saw a good Christian soul. And look, we, we thought Putin was going to help us against al-Qaeda and Islamic extremism. They've been fighting the Chechnyans. I, I suppose you could kind of get around to that. Um, then Obama takes over. And, of course, the attitude was, no, no, it was all because Condi Rice was such a cowboy unilateralist. We, were, we have the reset button Look, you know, the, with the, uh, the, the Russian foreign minister. And of course, you know, remember Obama meeting with Medvedev and saying, you know, oh, after the election, I'm going to have a lot more flexibility. And, you know, I will transmit this to Vladimir. And of course, in the the debate, you know, Obama, <laughs> Mitt Romney, the 80s call, they asked for their foreign policy back. Oh, what a stinger. Oh, you, you showed him, President Obama. Then we move on to Trump, who, of course, has his summit with Putin and then says, oh, yeah, I totally believe him. He wasn't trying to meddle in the elections and, you know. You listen to Trump advisors, they say, by, Trump would say, oh, yeah, Vladimir told, uh, Putin told me this. You know, and that's why he would believe things. He took Putin at his word and all kinds of stuff. And all of a sudden, right around Trump's election, Democrats become born again Russia hawks. All of a sudden, they're, you know, it's McCarthy days again. All of a sudden, uh, you know, we, we get it. And of course, keep in mind, they weren't upset with Trump because he had a friendly relationship with Putin. They were upset with Putin because he had a friendly relationship with Trump. He had finally done they, they Take it over Crimea. That's that's small time stuff. But once you start meddling in U.S. elections, something Democrats actually care about, then they get really mad. Biden gets into office after promising when I'm in charge, his days of bullying are over. What does Biden want? 
a stable and predictable relationship. What? You were you were elected to be the tough guy. You were elected to be the 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 one who's going to take on Putin. And oh, we'll, we'll restore Nord Stream two. Well, we'll, we we just want to calm things down. That's the most important thing. We cannot elect a president who looks at at Putin and just wants to kick his butt. We we just can't do it. Apparently, everybody gets into the White, White House and all of a sudden they're like, oh, I can I can get him to see reason. I can talk him down. He's he's a he's a normal rational guy. Once you get past all the killing. It just, mm-hmm. it, you know, yeah, everyone's a, res- a resetter. Well, they, they so, probably all get a note when they become president and says, do you like windows on high floors? If so, call this number. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, they're all accommodating. So now let's, let's hit really quickly something we missed last week, which was this alarming intelligence about a Russia, Russian nuclear capability in space. Mike Turner was talking about this, and then there were leaks in <clears throat> various newspapers. And it's either depending on who you believe, a, a Russian, Russia's developing a nuclear weapon that would just destroy all the satellites in space. <laughs> if you detonated a nuclear weapon in space right now, it'd be very, very bad news for, for everyone. I mean, it'd be a, a, a huge setback for modern civilization or a nuclear-powered anti-satellite weapon. Either way, it just shows that this uh, there's a lot of romantic thinking about space and it should be this domain that that's entirely peaceful and then belongs to all of humanity. But there is there is going to be combat in space. Well, depending on your accounts, there already has been. Um, China tested anti satellite weapons in low Earth orbit, and um, which is a problem because once you blow these things up, then you have all this debris that's in low orbit, and it's basically bullets flying at twenty two thousand miles an hour that can actually debilitate a spacecraft. And there's something I think it's called Kessler syndrome, in which the prospect of having so much debris in orbit actually precludes launches. Um, that's another story. So as you said, we don't actually know what this thing is. And it's very speculative. Like there's a very big difference did you, between did you see gravity, by the way, the movie gravity. I did. Yeah, it's very good on space debris. Yeah, space debris is a real thing. Um, and so is satellite warfare. Uh, all, all, quite a lot. And we don't know how many, but quite a lot of our vehicles in space are dual use insofar as their, uh, their communications, their reconnaissance their navigation, but you can also just transform them into a kamikaze and hit another vehicle. Um, and one of the reasons why, and we're developing this too, one of the reasons why I think a nuclear-powered anti-satellite vehicle that doesn't necessarily kamikaze itself into other vehicles but can be reused as a space weapon uh, is less threatening than the prospect of uh, an actual fissionable device in low-Earth orbit designed to neutralize all these vehicles at once, which neutralize a lot of Russian vehicles too, probably. The Samson option. Um, but that just tells you where their technology is. I'm probably more inclined to towards the one than the other just because of their technological capabilities. But this isn't small beer. I mean, we're talking about it like it's just kind of, nah, 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 it's just what the Russians do and what we have to do. And this is just, you know, normal relations. And we have uh, treaties going back to the Cold War um, that supposedly prevent the weaponization of space and nuclearization of space. Space is always going to be a, a platform, of a theater of war. And there will be platforms in that theater that will be used to neutralize enemy uh, assets in the event that hostilities break out. So I'm not overly concerned about that, but the idea of a fissionable device in space changes the dynamic dramatically to the point where we would have to respond. Other nations would have to respond. We would have multiple platforms in space. To, I don't know how many uh, you know, re-entry vehicles we could put in there with warheads on them, but there would be more than one. Uh, and that's a dangerous prospect. Did it rise to the level of creating a minor national panic last week? Mm, that's subject to debate. 
but it's not something we shouldn't be un we shouldn't be concerned about. It's it's discouraging in so far as it compels us to do a lot of things we don't want to do. One of the one of the problems with this whole Ukraine thing is we don't really want to commit the resources that are necessary to deter the great powers and near peer competitors who are coming after American hegemony. We just don't want to. Uh, and this is one of those wake up moments where it compels us to commit resources and change our paradigmatic approach to deterring Russia and China uh, in ways that we just have been psychologically resistant to. It's amazing, Noah, though, these, uh, these new capabilities we have with these low Earth uh, orbit satellites where we can launch, you know, we're, we're deploying hundreds of them. So a key vulnerability, we used to have these big satellites uh, way up in, in orbit, and they were just major, huge, juicy targets. These are harder to hit, and we're, you know, through the good offices of Elon Musk and others, uh, are, are able to deploy them much more quickly. I think there's a, well, a company I saw a story about the the other day where they they got the order to to send something up and it was up within twenty out twenty one hours, which is some sort of record. And there's definitely going to be a, an industry devoted to uh, research and development, hospitality, and low Earth orbit. All that stuff is on spec development right now, and it's most likely going to be launched sooner rather than later. And what are we going to have? We're going to have to protect these things. This is a frontier, and you need weapons in a frontier to protect them from. Uh, you know, the rogue elements because there's it's it's like the internet. There's very little. It's a hot theater. There's no deterrence. Everybody's testing each other's parameters, and there's no there's no established equilibrium. So yeah, of course we're going to have to put anti satellite ordinance in space, anti satellite platforms to protect those industries when they launch. We should be doing that right now anyway. So Charlie, exit question to you. It is an unanswerable one and a kind of a ghoulish one, but I, I think my best exit questions are unanswerable and ghoulish. So let's go to your gut would be at the end of his reign here, Vladimir Putin will die peacefully in bed. We'll have successfully handed over power to, to someone else who's going to operate on the same basis and, and he'll be just fine in some nice DACA somewhere, or it'll be a, uh, a much worse end for, for Putin eventually. Well, I will operate as usual on the principle that the worst thing that could possibly happen will. So I assume he'll live until he's 100 happily and then die peacefully surrounded by newbile young flight attendants serving him drinks. <laughs> Jim Garrity. He will die peacefully in his sleep after being poisoned. <laughs> <laughs> Noah. I mean, who knows? I think he probably dies in office, but there won't be a, a, a tidy succession process. And one of the pro problems with having these one-man governments, and G's government is courting this too, is that you, the intellectual infrastructure in leadership atrophies to the point where there's just no, there's, there is no successor. The, the leader doesn't want to cultivate a successor. So he will die in office, but what follows him will be profoundly chaotic. So I'm going to say no, he's not going to die peacefully in bed, but we shall see. We'll come back to this, you know, in 15 years or whatever can, it is. Can so I with ask that, a follow-up to your yeah. question quickly, just if anyone, would it have been worse if that short-lived rebellion that took place a few months ago had succeeded and Putin had been deposed? Would that have led to a worse outcome than we currently have? Oh, I, would, I would say Yes. I would say yes, because I don't know who would succeed him. It wouldn't have been Yevgeny Prigozhin. But whoever would succeed him, if if that rebellion was successful, it was predicated on the idea that Russia's prosecuting its wars with one hand tied behind its back, and they've got to get much more aggressive. So if that argument had won the day, we'd have a much more aggressive Russia. 
All right, so let's hear from our second sponsor this episode, Made In. If you're considering the pros and cons of different cookware brands, you should know that Made In has more of the pros. Pros like Tom Caliccio, Nancy Silverton, Brooke Williamson, and many other professional chefs who all trust their cooking to Made In cookware. Fact is, Made In has a long-standing relationship with professional chefs. The company evolved from a 100-year-old kitchen supply business and works with multi-generational makers to craft each piece. They make exactly what demanding chefs are looking for, including a wide selection of curated products from carbon steel to stainless clad, plus plateware, glassware, and much more. But perhaps the biggest pro is that Made In is sold online and delivered to your door, all for a fraction of the price of other top brands. If you want to take your cooking to the next level, invest in Made In cookware. Once you try it, you'll be pro Made In too. Right now, editors, listeners can get 10% off full-priced items from Made In. For full details, visit madeincookware.com slash editors. That's M-A-D-E-I-N cookware dot com slash editors as i've discussed before it's really wonderful stuff i made some eggs this morning with a maiden pan and just every time i i pick it up it's just a pleasure it's just a great it's a great piece of artistry so charlie we have this survey of various experts i guess it was ranking the presidents and we have abraham lincoln in first that's that's defensible fdr second george washington third Teddy Roosevelt, fourth. Thomas Jefferson, fifth. Harry Truman, sixth. Barack Obama, sixth. He's been moving up the charts in this survey. Right after him, Dwight Eisenhower. A <laughs> couple slots down. Joe Biden at 14. I believe, I'm having a little trouble uh, looking here. I believe he's ahead of, yeah, he's ahead, ahead of Woodrow Wilson, ahead of Reagan, ahead of Grant. <laughs> and uh, Jackson's been falling in the charts and uh, bringing up the rear is none other than Donald J. Trump. What do you make of it? What bothers me about these rankings, whenever I see them, is that the people who put them together demand to be taken seriously. I mean that quite literally. One of the biggest changes in my world view came when I realized that not only were a huge number of prominent academics distinctly mediocre, but that they were also political hacks. They rely for their authority on their authority. It is circular. They expect to be regarded, but there's no reason for them to be regarded because the work that they produce is so often appalling. And this is a good example of it. This is not a list of the greatest presidents in the sense that the average man on the street would conceive of it. This is a propaganda exercise. This is a political exercise. This is a list of the people that those who have taken over the academy, which they did deliberately, all you need to do is go back and read the plans outlined by the Students for a Democratic Society, and you will see that this was the point of their long march. This is an attempt to shape the past. It is so what, geographic. So, so what, what jumps out, out at you at the worst misjudgments here? Well, it's got two problems. One is that it's horrendously presentist. The notion that Barack Obama is the seventh greatest president in American history is absurd. But it is also what you would expect only a few years after he was president from people who liked him. And mm -hmm. the second is 
that only achievements that people on the left side of our political divide like seem to count. So you end up with Joe Biden being at 14 and Ronald Reagan being at 16. Now, you'd expect me to like Ronald Reagan more. Fine. I'm open about my biases. But that is stupid. And for mm -hmm. a start, Biden has been president for three years. Reagan was for eight. Even if you think that those three years have been full of good things, I don't. But let's assume that you like, say, the bills that Joe Biden has passed or the judges he's appointed. To elevate those achievements, if that's how you see them, over Ronald Reagan, who ended stagflation, ended the Cold War, ended America's decline, economically and otherwise, is bizarre. I mean, I'm sorry, I, I, it doesn't matter what, what your politics are. That's bizarre to rank Barack Obama above Grant. Yeah. Oh my gosh! I mean, this is a historical nonsense. What what this is is oh, Charlie. Would you would you say? Sorry to interrupt. Would you say FDR belongs in the top five? So you see, that's actually a good example of exactly what I'm talking about because I don't like FDR at all. But yes, I think that you can absolutely objectively make a case for that. He was the president during the depression. He was wildly popular. Won a series of landslide elections. He changed the country. He was a commander-in-chief during World War II. He reorganized our foreign policy and changed the world. Now, I don't like mm -hmm. lots of things that he did, right? but that's a great example of how someone like me who doesn't like him is able to step back in a way that these people are not. So if you're going to put FDR up there because of the shifts that I mentioned, then you have to put Reagan up there as well. You can't just do mm -hmm. one of them. Right. But they won't right. do it. They won't yeah. do it. They put him below Joe Biden, which just shows you how extraordinarily silly this is. And the last thing I'll say on this is I don't have a particular problem if they want to put Trump at the bottom. I think it is a little bit too early to work out what the hell Trump is, but I don't mm. think he's a good president. But yeah. there are other giveaways in there beyond that. If you look at where, say, Calvin Coolidge is, I think he's at number 34. <laughs> Yeah, and I think they, he's been he's been going down again. So, this is ideological, right? So, Jim, I would think um, also Teddy Roosevelt at four is way overranked. Six, eight. Yeah, and, and I, I'm I'm uh, I'm a Teddy Roosevelt fan, but I think he's in the category of great man, but not necessarily a great president. And and I would I'll put John Quincy Adams you know, very much in that that category. I mean, Quincy Adams might might have been among the greatest men ever to be president, but he was not he was not a good president. So besides the obvious ideological component to this, lo and behold, recent Democratic presidents are ranked very high. Recent Republican presidents are ranked significantly lower than you'd expect. Um, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a professor back in you know my college days, which was the Mesozoic era of the mid-90s. And um, I, they, they were talking, it was a similar scale. And I'm sure Bill Clinton, who had just been elected, was already you know probably in the top 10 uh, something, something ludicrous. And, and the professor had said, well, you know, the measuring sticks are ambition and goals or whatever, you know, study we were doing there. And like, you know, the, the, the grander the ambition, the higher you rank, and the more you accomplish those goals, the higher you rank. 
And I actually managed to get something of a concession. And maybe this, this is my memory of it. It's possible I'm remembering this better than, uh, than it actually occurred. But the gist was, I said, like, well, how about somebody like Gerald Ford? And, yeah, only president for two years. I'm not saying he was a fantastic president, but you look at what the country's state of the country when he took over after Watergate. Did we need a bold, ambitious, we're going to completely change everything in the country type president at that moment? Or did we need a designated driver? Do we need somebody who's just going to be calm, chill everything down, not overturn any apple carts, and just get back to normal? Like, there's a, there's sometimes the country needs different things. And I think even those of us who have, you know, beefs with what FDR did will recognize, like, wow, between the Great Depression and the start of World War II, we were in some really tough shape. And, you know, he had the right kind of leadership, the right kind of inspiration that we needed at that moment. And that counts for a lot. So it's just kind of a question of, like, the measuring stick that a lot of these historians apply, besides being blind to their own ideological preferences and party preferences and all that stuff, there's kind of this like hand waving away of what the country may have needed at that moment, which will not always align with the ideological and political preferences of these professors. Yeah. So, so someone by that standard you lay out, Jim, just the, the ambitions in, in achieving them. James James Polk, for a one-term president, certainly punches way above his weight. I mean, he, he wanted to take a, a, a lot of Mexican territory <laughs> for us, and, and he did. It was a, a little a little cynical. Um, but someone, Noah, who I think maybe justifiably is going going down the, the ranks is, is Andrew Jackson, because there used to be this view that he was kind of a proto-New Deal uh, liberal and, you know, the precursor to uh, FDR, and now it's all, um, you know, he was, he was a nasty... Uh, uh, a, a nasty SOB trail of tears and, and th- those sort of events. They never apply that to Wilson, though, do they? Mm-mm. Well, I think you put your finger on it insofar as this is entirely ideological and presentist, as Charlie had said. It's kind of interesting that Teddy Roosevelt doesn't get the uh, retrospective uh, you know, reevaluation, a negative reevaluation, given our, our focus on anti-colonialism in the academy. Nevertheless, Evaluating this in historical terms seems beside the point, as uh, as you suggested, as Charlie and Jim suggested. You know, the point of this list is to convey not any sort of objective historical assessment of these presidencies. It's to say Trump bad, and that's sort of what you get from these expert curated lists in heated political moments. This this survey reminds me of a Thomson Reuters Foundation study that was conducted at the height of the Me Too movement in which 550 experts in the field of women's issues were surveyed about the countries that were worst in the world for women. And the United States was right at the top of that list alongside places like Syria and Somalia and the Democratic Republic of Congo. Nobody believes that. They just wanted to say the greater truth here is that the Me Too movement has exposed some profound rot, the heart of American society. And therefore it was just as bad as all these other objectively terrible places. Likewise, the economist, I think a year earlier, does they do this annually, this um, survey of uh, democracies, the economist intelligence unit. What are the best democracies, the most democratic democracies in all of democracies? And what they came up with was, you know, America's good, but it's not as good as Uruguay. Why? Because Uruguay had mandatory voting. And that was a cause celeb at the time for academics and left-wing activists. And it just dem- demonstrates that these surveys are just vehicles 
to uh, promote a particular outlook, a particular political vision. And the substance of them is just beside the point. The idea here is to convey a sentiment and to substantiate a preconception that is shared by the academy and left-wing activists. It has almost nothing to do with the subject matter on offer. And this presidential survey seems to fit that bill. So Jim Garrity, I asked a question to you. You're number one president of the United States. Who is it? I'll go with Lincoln. Highest degree of difficulty. Charlie. I'm going to give the same answer I always give when I answer this, which is I'm choosing both Washington and Lincoln because they were the presidents at the time of the founding and then the second founding. They were both indispensable. America would not be what it is without both of them. And I cannot separate them out for that reason. No one. It's Washington, just because he set the tone for uh, the peaceful transfer of power and uh, the sort of unwilling uh, individual to occupy that office uh, demonstrated that this is, we expect patrician politicians to go back to their fields when their service is done. And uh, it would have been a much different country if he decided not to do that. And he could have. Yeah, I tip it to Washington. I take everyone's points. This is this is really, really close, but I think Washington just going first. But Lincoln, obviously, it's just so amazing. I was, I was in the villages uh, last week, as I, as I mentioned, I gave a little talk on, on Lincoln. And, and these, these were very engaged, like uh, well-informed people, and they asked great questions. And I just one of the key things about Lincoln, he figured out how to win the war because he thought it through like better than anyone else. And he just had this incredibly incisive mind and read about war and and figured it out in a way the military professionals, at least most of them, except for Ulysses S. Grant, did not. With that, let's hear from our third sponsor. This episode, it's deep in the ethos of National Review that work is a bedrock in a flourishing society and that work is a pivotal component in the God-given dignity of every person. Economist and financial manager David Bonson, our friend and colleague, has taken this message to its full potential with his brand new book, Full-Time Work in the Meaning of Life. Whether it be in public policy, in the culture, or even in the church, too often work is seen as a necessary evil and not the universal blessing that it is. David argues in this brand new book for the economic, theological, and ontological significance of work, suggesting that it's core to our identity and that the fastest way to a failed state will be to continue in this low regard for work that ignores our God-given capacity for productivity. David does not shy away from defending work as a therapeutic, cathartic vehicle for dealing with challenging circumstances in life and ultimately argues that the other things we value in a well-ordered life, marriage, children, community worship, are all enhanced when we properly prioritize and centralize work. It's not a book on work that you've ever read before. Get David Bonson's full-time work in the meaning of life today at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever fine books are sold. That's full-time work in the meaning of life and check out more at fulltimebook.com with that let's hit a few other things before we go jim indoor skydiving yes uh good friends of ours have a child turning 18 which is frightening enough uh the way they chose to celebrate was to go out to the iFly. it's basically an indoor skydiving facility out by dulles airport First, the plan was just to have the kids do it. And they said, no, no, let's have everybody do it. And so, yes, all 200 pounds of me uh, flew up in the air. Um, and it was actually, you know, remarkably easy and safe. They give you a little, you know, precautionary talk before then. They have you put on a helmet and goggles and all that. Um, but, uh, yeah, and I, you know, I have not, I, I'm debating whether to get the photos and video and put them up on online. But uh, if, they, if it could work for me, it can work for just about anybody safe, easy, fun, and really unlike anything else I've, uh, I've experienced. So my flying is not quite as cool as Sarah's, but uh, I still feel pretty good about it. Noah, you've been spending time at the Great Wolf Lodge. 
My second consecutive weekend in the Poconos will be my last, I hope. But yes, it's a it's a hotel slash indoor water park, uh, and it's a massive place. And we took the kids out there for the weekend. And they had a blast, and we were joined by uh, some family friends. And yeah, I'm very skeptical of these sort of places. I just feel like you're looking at a giant pool of meningitis. But it's I mean, it's pretty clean. It was actually cleaner than I thought it would be. And it's so chlorinated that you walk in there and you stop aging for the, the point at which you're in there. It's just, There's probably nothing that could possibly survive. Um, but the kids had an absolute blast and they're just gone. Like there's nowhere for them to disappear to. So you just kind of let them go. And I, I swear I didn't see them, the whole group of children for like three hours to the point where we actually got kind of nervous <laughs> about where they could possibly be. But in the interim, I was just riding water slides with my friend, <laughs> like a little kid. It was kind of fun. Um, but yeah, if, if you're ever out in the in the part of the Poconos and you want a giant indoor water park, Great, great Wolf Lodge is for you. Try Episode five of Masters of the Air. I've heard some criticisms of the show that it doesn't have the depth or character development of Band of Brothers. I think that's correct. The visuals are spectacular. But episode five turned it around a little bit that was difficult to watch i feel particularly close to this show because it's filmed around where i grew up and my dad and his dad and my dad's brother were all in the air force served on american air bases in the 70s so i i'm already predisposed to be hit by its difficult moments but episode five which came out last friday was was something else so I read a little while ago a book called The Wars for Asia, 1911-1949 by S.C.M. Payne. I would not recommend this book as casual reading, but it is very illuminating. We tend to think of the war in the Pacific, and maybe not quite starting, but you know, the major event was Pearl Harbor and then the island hopping and all the rest of it. When the main event was China, <laughs> and the Japanese, most of their troops were in China the entire, entire time. And uh, this author makes a very compelling case that everyone messed up China for their uh, for their purposes, except for maybe the uh, Soviets, but uh, to to lose the, the civil war and get a communist China is a a debacle that has uh, rung through the last eighty years, and we have not seen the worst of it yet. So, with that, it's time for our editor's picks. Jim Garrity, what's your pick? I'm going to give a shout out to Judson Berger and the Weekend Jolt. I write the Morning Jolt Monday through Friday, and then Judson comes along, usually Saturday mornings, usually pretty early. And walks you through not just some of the best stuff that we've done at National Review in the past week. A lot of websites will do, hey, here's our best stuff from the past week. And it's fine. But Judson really way, you know, weaves in some of his own insights and observations. And uh, just so you know, he knows a lot about a wide variety of topics. And then he always ends with some spectacular little musical sample or video or some song that had lifted his spirits. And just it's really good week in, week out. If you're not reading it every weekend, you should be. No, what's your pick? Jay Nordlinger, uh, who wrote The Other Russia. Uh, if you're attuned to the sort of thing that we get from, from Moscow, you see the largely the face of the country that the regime wants to present, which is young people who are gung-ho about dying on Ukrainian battlefields, you know, little babushkas who are absolutely vehement in their hatred of anybody on the Russian periphery who needs to be subsumed forcefully back within the Russian Federation. And that's a, a different Russia than the what we've seen in the wake of Navalny's death. And Jay uh, shows us uh, some of the faces of that, uh, a very brave Russia that is not Putinist, that is uh, 
resents deeply their illiberal social covenant, and it's uh, it was a good corrective. Go read it. Try. I'm going to take Dominic Pino's calm but savage explanation to Tucker Carlson of why things are cheap for him in Russia because Russia is a poor country and Americans are rich, especially Tucker Carlson. Essentially, Dominic points out that this is what happens when Americans go anywhere. They come back from Greece saying, can you believe how cheap dinner was? Yes, because America is rich and you are rich and Greece is not. It's an excellent explanation of what has happened here and why it's as silly now as it was during the 1980s. So my pick is the editorial we ran today, Monday, recording a little earlier, the first up this week on George Washington's birthday, just making the case for the extraordinary achievements and character of George Washington. So that's it for us. You've been listening to a National Review podcast. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or count this game without the express written permission of National Review magazine is strictly prohibited. This podcast has been produced by the incomparable Sarah Shitty, who makes us sound better than we deserve. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Noah. Thank you, Charlie. Thanks to How the World Works, Made in Cookware, and Full Time. And thanks especially to all of you for listening. We're the editors. We'll see you next time.